Premier Jason Kenney joins us now to discuss the plan that he laid out last night. Uh, a plan to remove the remaining restrictions very quickly and end the restriction exemption program immediately. Um, Premier, first of all, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you doing this, doing this for us. Good to be here. Um, I want to try and understand the timing of this announcement. Uh, it was January 28th you said you were looking at the end of March. Um, first week of February you said you're looking mid-February or end of February. And now we're up to, we're doing this now in terms of the restriction exemption program. Uh, you were asked, of course, you know, what about the protesters in Coots? How much pressure did that cause? The leadership review, how much pressure did that cause? You say it didn't. That didn't force your hand. So what caused the change in the timeline for you? Well, just a small correction, Shay. I said that uh, back in September when we brought in the restriction exemption or proof of vaccination program, that it would end uh, by the, before the end of the first quarter of this year, when I was asked about it on January 28th, I said, uh, that's still the case, but I hope we can do it a whole lot earlier. And indeed, I had in my mind mid-February, uh, on Je- December 28th, our COVID cabinet committee came to a unanimous consensus that the restriction exemption program uh, was no longer serving the purpose that it was originally created for and that we should repeal it as soon as we reasonably could. It was created for two reasons. One, uh, to help reduce transmission at a time when vaccines really were uh, helping to protect against transmission and uh, um, minor infection. Secondly, to get vaccination rates up. Well, it did help get vaccination rates up. We went from like 78 to 90% on the first dose coverage. But that's been frozen now for almost two months. And secondly, uh, I think you know that the... the situation has changed. Omicron is a lot more transmissible than Delta was, and uh, the vaccines are waning in terms of their ability to protect against infection transmission. This means that the pro- policy is no longer serving a useful, useful purpose. And I don't think we should keep a, a, a policy that's not working any longer in place because a, p- a few people are protesting. We have, we've got 38 truckers at the Coots border crossing itself versus 60,000 truckers who are doing their jobs every day. We're not going to let people breaking the law affect policy. But dozens of countries, states, provinces around the world are lifting proof of vaccination policies and other COVID restrictions because it's the right thing to do, not because of a few protests in Alberta. I agree with you. Obviously, a number of jurisdictions are. um, And I agree with removing the restrictions. The question I have is about the timing, though. Those other jurisdictions, and I checked, they don't have field hospitals still operating. They don't have nursing students working on the wards to provide care. And, and, you know, we saw an increase of 80-plus hospitalizations yesterday. Our ICUs were up by almost 10 yesterday. So we aren't seeing that decline that you say you need to see in order to take these steps. Not accurate to say we have field hospitals up and running. We we have uh, some very small uh, overflow capacity hospitals for patients who are about to be released. Uh, I think there's 10 altogether in in, in one of those units in... uh, uh, in, Cal- in Calgary. But Dave, sorry, Shay, what we have is a uh, ongoing decline since January 24th in new hospital admissions. That's a leading indicator. We've seen a steep declines in the uh, positivity rate, in our wastewater data, in n- new daily cases, in total active cases, which have gone from 55,000 to 30,000. Um, we are at 87% of hospital capacity. Typically at this point of year, it's over 90%. Um, and, and again, if listen, if the restriction exemption program was making any meaningful difference in reducing transmission, we would not do this now. But uh, look, uh, we have to change our approach to the disease as the disease changes. And we shouldn't allow the fact 
that some people are doing illegal protests to prevent us from doing so. Um, and like you say, the, res- the restriction exemption program, I-, I agree with you on that. It was to drive up vaccination, and it did. Um, the other one, you know, and you say we'll continue to monitor and see how things go in terms of removing capacity limits at restaurants and all those sorts of things that they've been talking about, 100% occupancy and things like that. What are those markers? Like back in the day, we had, you know, if we have this many hospitalizations, we do this. Mm-hmm. Um, what are those markers? Have you defined that? No, we have not uh, chosen very specific metrics because... There are so many to follow, and that's why we're looking for general trends. Uh, the primary thing we'll be looking at is is the uh, hospitalization numbers, but obviously transmission figures as well. So we're looking at at new hospital admissions, um, a, a total hospitalization. But even when you look at hospitalization, say this is where it gets complicated because like forty percent of people with COVID in acute care beds are not there for COVID. Mm-hmm. They're not being treated for COVID. They they just happen to get. Uh, a, a positive test, but they're generally not even symptomatic. So, you know, we've got to look at all the trends together, and that's what we're doing. Um, yeah, and I've talked to doctors about that, and they make the point, and I think it's a fair point, Doc, that, or, or Premier, that it doesn't matter why they can't send the guy from ER up to the bed. The bed's full, right? Uh, so if the beds are full, the beds are full. Correct. And and uh, we're at 87% of capacity in, in two or three of the five years prior to COVID, we were at higher bed occupancy than we are today. And, and let me just say that, that the real challenge is for Canada to increase our health capacity. We shouldn't be forcing, for example, kids, we shouldn't be interrupting their lives, forcing them to sit behind masks for six hours a day because we have an expensive healthcare system uh, which is not providing sufficient capacity. This is, this is a deeper issue. We'll be addressing it in our budget and in policy uh, in the months to come. Um, right after the announcement, of course, groups came out with some of their opposition and some of their concerns among the municipalities. Um, and you have said that you might actually take steps to bring in legislation so that they can't amend bylaws to bring in their own restrictions and things like that. I'm wondering, is that a plan that you still think could happen or will you allow municipalities some license in, in, in handling their own situation within their own cities? Well, we have done that in the past, and I'm happy to sit down. And it's really, the, I think, the two big city mayors yeah, yeah. have raised this. I'm happy to sit down and talk to them about it. Um, what I would like to avoid is a situation where cities are improvising their, an entirely separate public health policy setting. This is not their responsibility. It's, it is the responsibility of the province. We're responsible for the healthcare system. And we, uh, I, you know, ultimately, we have to make very difficult balancing decisions, uh, policies that are only strictly necessary to protect uh, the, the healthcare system with, while minimizing the damaging impact of restrictions on people's lives. But that's what we're seeking to do here. I'm happy to discuss this with them. But I don't think Albertans want to end up in a situation where municipal politicians end up improvising uh, in a, a completely separate public health policy when that is not their responsibility. What's different now to, as you say, earlier in the pandemic, that was fine. They brought her in their own mask mandates and their own, you know, city facility restrictions and the like. What's different now? Well, again, what I heard was the possibility of, of uh, cities bringing in their own separate uh, restriction exemption programs. And if they did so, it would not be based on any data. It would be based, I think, on um, public health political theater because, it's not moving up vaccine rates. It is not reducing transmission. It is creating division. So what is the point? Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't think we could passively sit by 
if uh, municipal governments were to uh, improvise a policy that is having no meaningful benefit in public health terms, uh, but is having a, a divisive and, and damaging effect on society. Kids in schools, uh, masks gone as of Monday. Um, some groups concerned, others applauding this. As you say, I mean, there's all kinds of different viewpoints on this. But the fact that um, the education minister yesterday came out with a statement saying, we will not allow school boards to bring in their own mask mandates or their own mask rulings. Again, the question is, is why? Why, why bigfoot it and say, this is what the province says, so that's the way it is? Well, you know why? Because... After two years, I think as a society, we should say enough already with COVID restrictions affecting the lives of kids. Kids have paid a disproportionate share of the burden uh, for a a disease which has uh, a a tiny uh, threat to the the, uh, health of of children. In fact, COVID is no more dangerous to kids than, than the typical flu influenza. And yet kids have paid a disproportionate price. Um, we should not look at children as, uh, quote, vectors of transmission. I see the, the teachers union uh, is threatening to sue the government to force kids to wear masks six hours a day um, because they, quote, create an unsafe workplace. This is bizarre and it's time to end it. Uh, it's time for us to focus any necessary measures on adults who are at some meaningful risk of the older they are uh, from COVID-19. So I just don't, like, I think, again, uh, we shouldn't let special interest groups create political pressure to force kids to pay the price for disease that primarily affects adults. Um, I want to ask you about one of the comments you made yesterday about stigmatizing the unvaccinated. And I know you've tweeted about this this morning, but a lot of our listeners aren't on Twitter. Um, You compared it to the stigmatization of HIV AIDS patients in the 80s. Um, People were were taken aback. And frankly, Premier, and you know this, they were angry uh, by that comparison. You know, the patients denied some some basic fundamental rights. Uh, You tweeted an apology this morning. Just uh, uh, walk us through that for people who aren't on Twitter. Um, Just uh, what happened there? Well, I was wrong to make the analogy, and it's the hazard of improvising an historical analogy without thinking it through. What I was, and I, I, I do apologize, it was, it was an, uh, the wrong thing to say. What I was trying to get at is this. I keep, hear more and more people saying that they're afraid of being in a restaurant or a business with somebody who is unvaccinated. Well, I think that is an, well, it is an irrational fear. People who are vaccinated now are just about as likely to transmit the virus as people who are unvaccinated. That's not because the vaccines aren't working. They're extremely effective at reducing severe outcomes. But with the high transmissibility of the Omicron variant, plus the waning effect of the second doses, most most Albertans got that like eight, nine months ago, um, there is uh, no measurable difference in the chances of transmission between vaccinated and unvaccinated people. So this is an irrational fear that's being spread to stigmatize, you know, for 750,000 unvaccinated Albertans and at 360,000 of whom are unvaccinated adults, it appears they're highly unlikely to get vaccinated. I disagree with their choice, but Shay, we have to learn to live together and, and we cannot end up with fear driving a kind of this permanent stigmatization of people who are unvaccinated. We have to learn to live with civility and respect for the choices that people have made. Um, uh, one other issue before I let you get out of here, and of course that's the situation that is gripping our, our border down at, down at Coots. And, and like you've said, and I, and I agree 100%, we don't want politicians directing police forces to do this and to do that. Uh, but at the same time, you brought in laws strictly for incidents like this. Are you frustrated? Are you, are you wishing the police did more? What, what do you want to see happen with the Coots border crossing? 
Well, I am frustrated, and it's actually, I understand today, 38 uh, uh, rigs or semis at the border crossing itself. Uh, and let's put that in perspective. We've got 60,000 uh, licensed truck drivers in Alberta. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, 60,000 licensed trucks and 300,000 licensed uh, trucks and 60,000 drivers. So this is a tiny, tiny number of people in comparison. Uh, by breaking the law, they are creating a public safety hazard. They are inconveniencing thousands of truckers just trying to do their business who have to reroute to other ports of entry. They're hurting farmers and livestock uh, producers uh, by slowing down exports. Uh, and uh, they have to end this. And we have made it clear to the RCMP that we expect them to enforce the law and maintain order. They're responsible, of course, for the operational tactics and how that is done. In terms of the tools we've given them, I do note that yesterday, for the first time, the uh, Defense of Critical Infrastructure Act passed in the legislature last year was actually used for the first time in a charge against somebody who was inciting uh, a violation of that law. So all, we've given the RCMP all of the resources they need, both in terms of legislation, policy, and other resources. And uh, it, what's happening has to end, period, full stop. How do you respond to the allegations? And they get harder and harder to defend as every day goes by, the fact that if this was a group of Indigenous protesters or anti-oil protesters, they'd have been given the bums rush a week ago. The law doesn't apply equally to different groups. Depending on what you're protesting, you get a pass. Um, how do you defend against accusations like that? Because it gets harder every day, Premier, that this goes on. Well, I, I don't like it one little bit, but I, I don't think that analogy uh, is, is accurate. If you remember the so-called uh, um, land defender rail blockades uh, a year, uh, sorry, two years ago, uh, it, those but were we not... we didn't have the law then. That's why the law came in. Well, the, the law is... <laughs> there, there was, it was never lawful to block a railway. And I've seen, unfortunately, with much frustration, um, those kinds of blockades go on sometimes for weeks. I think that is wrong. That's why we brought in this legislation. We've made it clear to the RCMP, our provincial police force, that there's a the government and the public expects the laws to be maintained, but they are responsible for enforcement decision. It's a very complex and fluid situation right now. As the RCMP said yesterday, they've been unable to obtain towing equipment, for example. So I respect the fact they've got some really difficult operational uh, issues to work through, but at the end of the day, uh, what the protesters are doing uh, is uh, it's dangerous, it's illegal, it's damp, it's affects the lives of others. There is no right to block a road, at least of all, uh, a border crossing, uh, and uh, it simply has to end. Uh, Premier, thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks, sir. As Premier Jason Kenney.